Well, it's great to be with you all. Um, I was here about two years ago, I believe. So some of you look familiar. Some of you are, are new. Uh, but I am really glad to be here. And uh, Alex has been kind enough to extend an invite for me to be here a handful of times throughout 2018. So I hope uh, that I get a chance to get to know you all over a period of time uh, throughout the year. Um, I'm excited about the series that you're in. I, I kind of wish that I was here other weeks of the series as well. But as we talk about being filled up, one of the things we have to think about is what happens when we're filled up? What do we do once we're filled up? Um, and the goal is that once we're filled up, it pours out of us into other people. And so one of the things that we see in Scripture is that when we're filled up, it actually impacts how we pour out into other people. And that's what I want us to look at uh, here uh, this morning. But I want to start by asking you a question. Uh, who knows you? I mean, like, who really knows you? Like, who's the one that knows your stuff but doesn't run away? Who's the one that you could call at 3 a.m. and they would pick up and they would come? Who really knows you? Now, in this series on Fill Me Up and what does it mean in terms of our relationship and the impact it has on other people, I want to back up a little bit because... We could look at the book of Acts. I know you've been in Acts and will be in Acts, and, and Acts is an amazing book. I actually want to back up just a little bit, and I hope you have your Bibles, and if you do, feel free to start uh, getting those out, whether they're paper or on your phone or whatever it may be. But I, wanna, I want us to look at um, a story in the book of Mark. And um, let me back up just a little bit, too, in terms of looking at the four biographies of Jesus, because they're about the same person of Jesus, but they're written from four different, not only authors, but perspectives. So if you think about the four Gospels like you would think of categories on Netflix, this is what it would be like, okay? So Matthew would be in the foreign film section, because he's writing specifically to Jewish people, a Jewish audience. Now, I would imagine most people in this room probably aren't Jewish, and so we're kind of foreigners, in a sense, reading this story um, if you were reading um, the book of Luke, it would be in the, the drama or documentary section. This is a good drama uh, about a biography of, of Jesus. Uh, and the book of John would be in the sci-fi section. Not that it's fiction, but that it has sci-fi elements where John talks about eat my flesh and drink my blood and this idea of logos and the word. And it's kind of sci-fi, kind of abstract stuff. But you get to the book of Mark, Mark would clearly be in the action section. It's the shortest, but it's got the most. I mean, it's shoot them up, blow them up. I mean, it's all over the place in just 16 chapters. And so we're going to look at a story in uh, the book of Mark. And as you're turning there, I want to um, give you some background information. I had the privilege of studying in Israel when I was in college, and it changed my life uh, because I was able to see where these stories happen, which then make the stories pop. Now, we can't get on a plane right now and go, so I'm going to show you some pictures that I took and some ways to understand a little bit of the background. So I'm going to give you the background, and then we're going to dive into the story and then look at the implications for our lives, okay? Um, next slide here. Um, this one right here is just a map of Israel. Israel is only the size of the state of New Jersey. And uh, so not, not very big at all. You see uh, the Mediterranean coast on the left there and the west side. You see the Dead Sea, that body of water, that big oval in the south. And then there's a little tiny blue line that connects the Dead Sea all the way up to um, that bigger body of water in the north. And that is the Jordan River. And uh, the Jordan River uh, and the body at the, at the top there, that smaller body of water, is the Sea of Galilee. Next slide. And the Sea of Galilee actually isn't a sea. It's just a big lake. 
about 17 miles north to south, about uh, 10 to 12 miles east to west. Uh, scripture sometimes calls it Lake Kinneret. Kinneret is the word for harp in Hebrew. So it's Harp Lake. Kind of looks like a harp, doesn't it? Uh, next slide. And so as we look at it, it's actually quite beautiful. It's surrounded. Um, it's pretty pristine. This is today, so it's not built up. There's not big McDonald's or giant billboards around the lake. So you can kind of picture what it's like in the time of Jesus, which is pretty cool. Um, and it's, uh, you know, there's fishing boats that are out on there. You don't see water skiers or motorboats. It's, it's really kind of pristine and calm, which is wonderful. Surrounded by mountains, so it sits in a bowl. Next slide. There's another picture of a fishing boat. Yep, surrounded by more mountains. Next slide. Um, yeah, beautiful, beautiful land. This is uh, Capernaum. This is Jesus' hometown, this area here. And I think I've got one more slide here, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so this is us on a hike. So you can just kind of see a little bit where this is the northwest corner looking at it. And uh, so just a, a beautiful area. And the story that we're going to look at is actually, actually takes place just a little bit to the left of the camera, the end of the, the picture here, which is wonderful. So Capernaum is just a little bit to the left here, this northwest corner. Um, and uh, in the region, um, around Capernaum has very dark volcanic rock that's called basalt rock. Next slide. Um, this is the, the, I'm sorry, one more slide after that. Um, so you see the black rock here, there used to be volcanic activity around the area. And then the volcano erupted, the lava hardened and became very dark black rock. So this is Jesus' hometown, known for basalt rock. They built, rebuilt the temple on top of it, or the synagogue, excuse me, um, on top of the original basalt rock um, there. Now, Capernaum's also known for uh, being a stone mill. Uh, next slide. So they made lots of, of uh, things there, including um, a millstone factory. And so Jesus kind of had this thing right along the lake there in uh, the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. He said, um, if, you, if you distract a little child, it would be better if you put a millstone around your neck and were thrown into the sea. Pretty interesting, as Jesus' hometown was known for making millstones, and the sea was just a few hundred yards away from the town. Kind of interesting. All right, so all that to say, these homes made of basalt rock in this region, many homes were one story, and they would have stairs going up to the top. We don't have too many pictures uh, that exist today of those. We just see the ruins. But you could go up on the roof, and beams were laid down, and then you would have um, hard, compact dirt that would be on top of it. So you actually go up there. And the reason you want to go up there is because the heat of the day, at the end of the day, you'd want to go up, and you'd want to be up on your roof and feel the gentle breeze coming off the lake as a way of cooling down, right? No air conditioning. Um, and so this was a way that we could cool down if we were in the first century. And so many people would go up on their roofs. And again, houses weren't very big in that time, but this hard, compact clay with wooden beams, they could lay palm branches and then clay on it. You could actually stand up on top of there. And some of you are saying, why are you telling me all this? I thought I was coming to church, not a history lesson here. All of this will make sense of the story that we're about to look at. All right? So I want you to keep filing, uh, that, way, filing that away and keeping that close. Um, but the passage we're going to look at has a lot to say about community. Now, listen, I know community is a buzzword today. And some of you may have just given an internal eye roll. Because it's so prevalent. 
But what do we do with that? Do we just discard it, or do we need to actually explore what does real community actually mean? And I'm convinced we need a massive rethink of this idea of community. And a lot of people talk about Christian community and gives us warm and warm, fuzzy feelings. But the truth is, if we actually engage with real Christian community, it sometimes makes us want to throw up. And we'll get into that in a little more, too. But in doing the hard work of Christian community, sometimes we want to just throw in the towel. But one of the things that I've learned and our church has learned over the last 10 years, we like to say that biblical community is necessary. <laughs> it's necessary. It is both uh, messy, but it's absolutely worth it. It's the only way we actually experience Christian community is that it, we have to realize that it's necessary. And it's in those moments where we want to give up or pull out our hair or pull out other people's hair that God has our full attention. And we begin to actually say, how do we, now that we're filled up, begin to pour out into other people, especially when we don't always want to be around them, even though we're called to love them. You know, if community is self-serving, it may feel like it's warm and fuzzy, but it makes very little meaningful difference in the world. And the world is desperately longing to see a group of people who will take seriously the call to serve beyond ourselves like Jesus did. And when authentic and faithful community is at its best, it forms us and then sends us to love others. And that's the story I want to look at in Mark chapter 2. And so I want to encourage you to turn there uh, if you have that. If not, it's okay. And I'd like for us, um, I, I want to read this. So if you wouldn't mind, would you stand? Uh, I'd like to go ahead and stand right now. And I'm going to read this. The reason why I sometimes have us do this is uh, not only to get the blood flowing so that we pay attention a little bit more, but also to say that if a dignitary or an official or a president or whomever walked in the room most people, as a way of showing respect or attention or honor, we would stand. And so scripture, we believe, speaks to us and has authority in our lives. But it also reminds us as we stand that it's not just something for us to listen to comfortably, but for us to take and then walk it out and to begin to do something with it. And so we stand at attention in our hearts, but also with our lives and our bodies physically with this. So Mark chapter 2 I'm going to be reading from the first uh, 11 verses here. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk? But that you may know that the Son of God has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up and take your mat and go home. And he got up and he took his mat and he walked out in full view of them. And this amazed everyone and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. You can be seated. 
Now, there's a lot going on here regarding community and healing and bickering. And so I want us to look at this because Mark is being very intentional here to give us four different glimpses of, of community. And I want us to see if we can begin to notice these and not just notice these in the story, but notice these in our own lives too. So the first glimpse that Mark gives us here is a glimpse of intentional, healthy community right there at the beginning, verses three, four, and five. We're heard about, we hear about these four nameless, faceless friends that choose to go up the stairs from the basalt rock house to be on the compact dirt roof and to begin to start digging. They pick up a shovel, I would assume, and they start digging. Now, think about this for a while. Take off our rosy glasses when we think about Scripture. They get creative. Clumps of dirt start falling on the inside of the home. Imagine you're inside the house, listening to Jesus talk, and all of a sudden, what was that? You're getting hit with clumps of dirt, and all of a sudden, there's now this hole, this little beam of light with dust, and you can see this beam, and it's starting to get bigger. Are you worried the house is going to collapse? You hear commotion. You hear what's going on. People begin to get nervous. What's happening here? And all of a sudden, you look up, and you see what looks like a piece of material, and you realize it's a mat. And off of each of the four corners, most likely, there's a rope. And all of a sudden, you see this thing being, Lord, what is that? Is that some object? Oh, it's a person being lowered down right in front of you. And you begin to see, oh, it's somebody who's paralyzed on this mat, being lowered right down in front of the feet of Jesus. Now, think of this radical thought. These friends wanted to do whatever it took to bring people to the feet of Jesus, even if it meant vandalism. They were willing to do whatever it took to bring people to the feet of Jesus. And what's perplexing in verse four or verse five, I don't know if you caught it or you see it in your Bibles there, it says, and Jesus saw their faith. And said to the man, your sins are forgiven. What's that all about? Their faith, plural, your sins, singular, are forgiven. What is that about? Jesus is implying that oftentimes it's the faith of a community that can usher people in the direction of being transformed by Jesus. Don't miss out on that. That's huge. So I want to ask you a question, a rhetorical question, but one that I want you to sit with. What might you be doing or what could you be doing to do whatever it takes to bring people to the feet of Jesus, even if it means vandalism? Those guys were filled up, filled up with some kind of love, for at least for their friend, to do something that creative, that radical, Imagine if you're the homeowner. What are you telling these four, four people? But they were willing to do that. Are, are we willing to do that? So we see a good glimpse of intentional, healthy community. But 
Mark also shows us the second glimpse of intentional damaging community. Right? The bickering, the backbiting, the criticizing, being judgmental by the religious leaders who were there. That contrast is very intentional on Mark's part. The critiquers, the religious referees, the moral police, they are ticked at Jesus. And Jesus got ticked at them. Instead, they were thinking to themselves, how can this person say that your sins are forgiven? Only the Son of God can do that. Of course, they didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, but they're angry. And then it says that Jesus, right there in verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit. And I think it's easy for us to say, of course he did. He's the Son of God. But do you realize that resentment, psychologists believe, is the only emotion you can't hide? When you resent someone, your face cannot hide it. Yes, he was the Son of God. But could it be that Jesus, as a human, cared for people so much that he noticed and he looked and he watched? He knew in his spirit what they were thinking, and he called him out on it. Do you see the irony here? These are the religious leaders. (laughs) They're supposed to have it all together, and yet they're the ones destroying healthy community happening right before their very eyes. Ever been around people that pick out the bad things when you're just afraid they come close? As a pastor for 15 years, there are certain people in my church. I'm sure this never happens with you, and Alex would never think this of anyone here. But there are times where I see someone coming to me, and I go, oh, no, what did I do this time? Because the only time I hear from them is when there's a problem. I never hear from them any other time. But when they start coming, I go, oh, man. And then I say, Lord, forgive me. I shouldn't judge somebody like that until I have a conversation with them. And I go, I was exactly right. This is what the religious leaders are doing every, every time Jesus is around. And so don't answer this question too quickly, this question I want to challenge you with. Are you involved in things that damage others? Criticism, judgmentalism, finger-pointing, bickering, gossiping that actually destroy a good thing that God may be doing among people? And if so, what might it look like to make things right with that person? Be able to go to that person maybe after this service. Or maybe before your head hits the pillow tonight. And just say, hey, listen, i got to swallow my pride. This is really awkward. I need to make something right with you. I have actually been chipping away at healthy community. And I need to own that. There's a third glimpse that Mark gives us here. And it's a glimpse of unintentional damaging community, even when the intentions were good. Let me explain. This is the hardest for me. This is the one that makes me squirm the most. And this happened in the story of Zacchaeus as well. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? Why did the short little man climb the tree? He wanted to see Jesus. And what kept him from seeing Jesus? The crowd. What was the crowd doing? Watching Jesus. Hmm. Same thing in this story. Why can the paralytic not get to Jesus, the person who needs Jesus, can't get to Jesus because people who are looking at Jesus are blocking the other people who need to see Jesus? Mm. This is why I squirm. Because in my pursuit of Jesus, am I unintentionally blocking other people in their pursuit too? Hmm. 
It's startling and it's troubling. That without even knowing it, I could be blocking healthy community of others. This is a little hard for us to even identify, right? Some of this identifies our own blind spots. And the reason why they're blind spots is because we can't see them, right? And so we need even other people to be able to call that out in us when that's occurring. So whose view of Jesus might I be blocking as I pursue him, maybe without even knowing it? And if that's the case, who can I invite to help speak into my life to say, hey, listen, I don't know if you're meaning to do this, but I think others are impacted negatively because of the way you're interacting with our community. Or do you have the courage to be able to step out to other people and say, listen, I love you, and it'd be easy for me just to ignore this, but I need to address this. I think when you do this, this impacts our community this way. And I love you. I know this is hard to hear, but I need to speak into this to you because for the sake of our community, we need this together. And then we get this fourth glimpse here. And it's a glimpse of people who are attracted to healthy community when it's lived out. The people were overwhelmed and attracted to the community that they saw. It'd be easy to walk away and feel like this is a great story about a physical healing. And that's part of it. In fact, probably at the top of your Bible, that section, it says the healing of a paralytic. And as amazing as it is that Jesus healed this man and he could get up and walk, that isn't the best part of the story. The best part of the story is this man's sins were forgiven. The people were amazed. And his four friends and their faith had something to do with the transformation of this person. That's the heart of the story. What's interesting is that the man's sins are forgiven, and Jesus gives us this clear picture of true community, of saying you, this man was spiritually paralyzed, while at the same time being physically paralyzed. But because he was physically brought to the feet of Jesus, that means spiritually he was renewed back to exactly who God had created him to be. Now, what's interesting, Jesus says in verse 11, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Now, let me ask you this. Why the mat? (laughs) I would just say, just leave the mat over there and go home. Why did Jesus tell him to take his mat and go home? I don't know. But I would venture to guess it would be because Jesus wanted the man to have some sort of physical reminder of who he was before he met Jesus. Some sort of reminder to say, remember who you were? I'm sure many of us have mementos in our house or reminders or pictures or old journals or symbols that we hang on a shelf. Right? They remind us of important moments or seasons of our life and saying, we're not who we once were. We're different. And this reminds me of that. It was a reminder of life change. What's interesting, though, what Jesus did in the midst of that, and it's sparked by four friends who are willing to pick up a shovel and start digging, that in the midst of that, life change happens, and people are attracted to healthy community. We see lots of pictures of unhealthy community. We see that in the book of Acts, right? Acts chapter 2. Some amazing things happen. The Holy Spirit comes down in power, undeniable uh, way that the, the Spirit comes down. The flame hovers over the heads of everybody, not just pastors, not just spiritual leaders, but over everyone's heads. 
Everyone had a role. The Spirit was involved in filling everyone up. Peter, the failure, is used by the Spirit to bring people to Christ just a few weeks after the biggest failure of his life. If that doesn't encourage you, you think, I have failed too much, Peter could not have failed more. And a few weeks later, God uses him to spark something amazing to birth the church that you and I are sitting here today as a result of what happened there. That's amazing. As followers of Jesus, filled by the Spirit, they lived out radical love because it filled them up too much, and it poured out into the lives of other people. And people came to faith because of the healthy community they saw in Acts 2. Have you ever thought that the way we model healthy community may be Generation Church's greatest form of evangelism in this area? Imagine if that happened. People said, I don't even believe what you do. I am coming because I've never seen people love people in this culture the way you all do. I'm in. Needs were met. People were being healed in Acts 2. People were thanking God with gladness. They weren't complaining. There was awe, not cynicism. Nobody was without need. They learned about Jesus through the scriptures. Who wouldn't want to be a part of a community like that? No wonder people were attracted to that. And it was the way they modeled community they became a driving force of evangelism. But back to Mark 2. And let me ask a direct question. Who are you in the story? Who are you? Are you the ones being willing to say, I'll pick up a shovel. I'll start digging for my friends. Absolutely. You bet. And many of you do that. I know that because Alex has told me stories of the way in which many of you are sacrificially loving and giving. Not just people in this room, but others. And I love it. Some of you may say, I'm so spiritually or emotionally or mentally or physically or socially paralyzed. I can't get up off my mat. And maybe nobody even knows it. Are you the people in wanting to listen and explore with Jesus? But maybe you're blocking others who need to see him too. Or are we being critical and cynical and needing to say, Lord, you got to rescue me from my cynicism. i got to get over this because this is just picking away at healthy community. You know, the interesting thing about the four friends, we're never told their names. We don't know what happened to them afterwards. I'd love one day in heaven to sit down and have a cappuccino with those four dudes and just say, tell me, tell me what was going through your mind. Did you have to repay for the damage? That's what I would want to ask. But I'm sure if I asked them, was it worth it, that they would say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. You know, you and I are agents of the kingdom, and if we're agents of the kingdom, it means that we're people of the shovel. And for people with a shovel, we're always looking for ways that we can help people. We're always looking for ways that we can serve. Not because it's the right thing or the good thing, and that's good too, but because we're motivated with a love that says, what God has entrusted to me, I want to entrust to other people. I want to model for other people what God has done for me. You realize that, right? You realize that the God of the universe loved you so much, he didn't want to stay far away from you. You know what he did? He picked up a shovel And he dug a hole in the roof of heaven. And he was lowered down, not as a paralytic, but to rescue us paralytics. I'm going to say, you don't have to be on your mat anymore. I'm going to make a way for you. And there's no way you could get in the front door on your own. 
And all I need you to do is just let me start digging and let me start lowering you. That's the kind of God that we serve, that has a son who's willing to do that for us and willing to die for us in that. I have uh, jolting news for you. I'm from the Philadelphia area, so I can be a little bit more blunt, right? Uh, You're high maintenance. You're screwed up. And so am I. And the gospel is only good news to those who realize that we are paralyzed. If you don't think you're paralyzed, the good news of Jesus is not good news. It's just news or an opinion or an update. But it's not good. But a healthy community, healthy biblical community, involves admitting first that we are people on the mat. That we're paralyzed and need help. So based on this Mark 2 story, I want to highlight very quickly uh, five truths that I just want to encourage you all with. Little phrases that have been really helpful for our church as we've wrestled with this biblical community, this concept of it being necessary, of using the Mark 2 story and realizing we're embodying the good news of Jesus and then turning it around with others. The first one is that we just have one rule at our church, no perfect people are allowed. Because if we're perfect, we're really just screwing up this healthy community thing. No perfect people allowed. The house um, that we're in now, we've been there for four or five years now, and we bought it from an older couple, and they have no faith background. Wonderful people. We love staying in touch with them. And um, he found out, you know, I was a pastor. And uh, so, you know, people get very nervous around pastors when they have no faith background, right? And so they make all sorts of jokes and nervous laughs. And, and uh, he, he said, oh, so I have to be perfect if I were to come to your church, huh? And I said, actually, we have one rule is that no perfect people are allowed. And he's like, well, dude, he got all excited. He's not emotional. That that may include me. I can come. And I said, but remember, if you think you have your stuff together, we have bouncers at the door that check ID to make sure, and we'll kick you out. He's like, no, no, no. You just have to admit that you're not perfect. That's the only rule. It's the only way grace works. And it just blew his mind. He said, for years... I thought I couldn't go to church because I wasn't perfect. No perfect people are allowed. And I hope that's the rule here, too. And the second one is that life is best lived face-to-face. While sharing life together, not just sitting in on a service, but sharing life together, that disciples are actually made best in circles, not in rows. Now, rows are good. I and mean, We have rows like this, you know, and, and uh, but this is part of it. But they're made better when we're shoulder to shoulder with people, when we're sitting in circles. And I'm sure you do that. And I know that there are small groups here and smaller communities. You're having parties together. That's how life is being shaped when you live life face to face. The third one is this. Life has meaning when we live and serve beyond ourselves. Because the story of putting ourselves in the center of the plot of our life isn't where we find ultimate meaning, despite what our culture tells us, despite what Oprah says. But when we put ourselves in the center of our own story, we think that we will be fulfilling and meaningful, and we find ourselves engrossed in reality TV, enamored by other people's stories because we find our own story boring. But when someone else is at the center of our story, we live beyond us. That's the mojo of healthy biblical community. And sometimes it's easy to think, well, what's in it for me? 
right? There's another Ecclesia pastor I was talking with this week out in California, and he said his wife came up with a term, and it's consumity, <laughs> where we try to consume community. What do you got for me? What, what can you do for me? Because I'm the center of my story. You need to give me what I want. And he said, he said we're just not going to play the game of giving people consumity. We're going to be a church of community. The next one is this. Community doesn't just happen. It takes intention and a proactive approach. Nobody floats into full devotion to Jesus, and nobody floats into deep, healthy, communal relationships. Nobody wakes up one day and goes, I don't know how it happened. I just got all these great, deep relationships. It takes intentional, purpose, purposeful effort to be people of the shovel. And the last one is this. And this is a huge lie that, like, we continue to have to combat this big misconception. Healthy community is not the absence of conflict. It is the presence of Jesus when the conflict is present. Healthy community is not the absence of conflict. It's the presence of Jesus when the conflict is present. If everybody's getting along all the time, I'm not sure we're truly tasting healthy community. If all it is is warm fuzzies, that's pseudo-community. It's really just an affinity group. But unless we're covered in the messes of other people's lives and of loving people together when we just want to pull our hair out, it's not really where we need to be. If we're not getting dirt under our fingernails from digging holes in roofs, we're not there yet. Have you ever noticed that Jesus was really good at making awkward community work? But have you also noticed how Jesus was really good at making working community awkward? <laughs> he did that a lot too. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who uh, many of you may have heard before or read before, he, he tried to resist um, the Nazis uh, for a long time and was eventually, uh, he died in a concentration camp just shortly before he was actually uh, freed um, everyone was freed in the concentration camp just a few days prior. He said this. He said, every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. We go in thinking, I'm going to get something for me. This is for me. We actually destroy healthy community as it's intended to be. If I'm still the center of my own story and the, my preferences are still in the center of what I want with community, we'll actually wreck it, even though our intentions are good. You know, it's only when we're vulnerable that we grow. It's only when we're vulnerable where we're willing to say, you know what? I need help. I am not perfect. I am paralyzed in this area of my life. And I just need to reach out. I need help. Will you help me? It's only when you're vulnerable that you grow. You've never grown close to someone. You've never matured in your life without vulnerability first, ever. It's only when you're vulnerable that you will grow. And we're called to be the people of the shovel. When the Spirit fills us up and overflows us, that we turn around and say, I have too much to keep to myself. It's time for me to give to others. And so we become people of the shovel. And I know you all are doing that. I just, I want to make sure you're hearing from Mark 2 
the opportunities that we have, because of what Jesus has modeled for us spiritually, we get a chance to turn around and do that relationally with and for other people. All right, well, as we're landing the plane here, one of the things I want you to do at the end of each row, I think you did this last week with index cards. I love using index cards. So there should be on the, on the rows index cards and some pens. I'd love everybody to have a, an index card and a pen. You're not turning this in. This is purely for you. But I want to give you just a moment to think about these three questions. The first question is this. Next slide. Think about a time in your life when Jesus rescued you in your paralyzed state and restored and healed you in your life. There may be some of you, though, in this room that just say, you know what, I don't even know. I I haven't experienced that yet. I'm not there yet. That's fine. Then I would say, where do you long for Jesus to rescue you from that? So think of a time. Maybe it was a paralyzed state emotionally or vocationally, financially, mentally, How has he rescued or restored or healed you? Or how do you long to be rescued or healed or restored? And then the second question is this. Where do you long to have someone pick up a shovel for you and start digging on your behalf? Where do you long for someone to pick up a shovel and dig on your behalf if it meant that you would be even closer to Jesus because of it? And then lastly, number three, where can you pick up a shovel and start digging on behalf of others? Who do you know who's hurting? Who do you know who's discouraged and without hope? Who has unforeseen needs? What would it look like to pick up a shovel for them? And we think about these things, and we write these things down, not so that we can be good people or good citizens. byproduct and a benefit, but that's not the driving motivation. The driving motivation is that this is what Jesus has done for us. And because we've been filled up and he's given that to us through the good news of Jesus in our spiritual paralyzed state, he's rescued us, he's redeemed us, he's forgiven our sins. He says, now you go do this too. Be my shovel bearers out in the world. That's the good news of Jesus. When we acknowledge first that we're paralyzed, bad news, but Jesus wants to rescue us from our paralysis, good news. Here's what I'd like for us to do. I want you to hold your cards just in your hand, and um, I want you to keep, I'm going to pray in just a moment, but I want you to keep your eyes open. I actually want you to look at the card, and as you're looking at the card, uh, I'm going to pray. And maybe as we pray, there, you're sensing that maybe the Lord is asking you to do something with what's on here. Maybe you say, this is what I long for Jesus to rescue me, but I, I've never actually acknowledged that. Or maybe he's rescued you and redeemed you, but it's been a while since you returned to say thanks. Maybe this is a great time just to say thank you, Jesus, for being willing to dig the hole in heaven and to come down and rescue me. Or maybe it means, Lord, I need the courage to tell people that I'm paralyzed. I've got to be vulnerable. I've got to admit that I'm not perfect. So maybe people in this room or in my small group, 
or other people to say, I, will, will you be a shovel bearer for me? I, I can't do this. I've tried on my own and I can't. I'm sick of trying because I just can't get off my mat by myself. Or maybe this is an opportunity as the Lord's brought some people to mind who have needs for you to say, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? How do I respond? Do I reach out to them this afternoon? Sometime this week, do I bless them in some way? But as people who've been filled up and given so much and been rescued, how can you begin to enter into that, to live that out with the other people that you know? So take a moment to just think about that, to be prayerful about that, and then I'm going to pray in just a short moment.